This podcast is sponsored by the EV Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to sadly the final episode of the Baby Tribe podcast for this season. We're in December, Christmas is about three weeks away. Everybody's getting really excited. Are you all set for Christmas, Katie? I'd like to say I am, but I think I've actually got quite a bit more done than I had last year. So that's a step up. I do I do um, know that we look like fools here, Afif, with our Santa hats on. But, you know, we would have won our Christmas festive scrubs had we been a little bit more prepared. You're not wearing your trademark pink one. I know, we've, we fell a bit behind with the washing. So um, the Navy came yeah, back out. It's all to do. So... For people preparing for Christmas, this episode, we're actually not going to have a bit before the guest because we have an amazing guest for you this um, episode. Who is our guest? Do you know what? This is by far, and I I shouldn't say this because all our guests have been absolutely amazing, but this is one of my favourites of all time. We have Anne, Afif's better half. Afif's better half. And yes, you've been at me to get her on the podcast. I have been resisting because I know she's going to show me up. That she does, Thief, that she does. And yeah, and after this one, I'll I'll make sure that she never comes on the Baby (laughs) Tribe ever again, because I think it's a pretty amazing episode. She talks about her journey as being a mum, and then she talks about her career, and then she talks about her experience being an obstetric anesthesiologist in a maternity setting. And we address a lot of important things I think that people need to listen to and understand I suppose about what goes on in maternity hospitals in terms of um, obstetric care, labour delivery, c-sections and all of that. I learned so much in this episode but I think it's going to resonate with so many mums if you're expecting or even just after you've had your baby I think this is one you're going to definitely want to tune into. Yeah so this episode is for anybody that is thinking about getting pregnant, is pregnant or just had a baby I think it applies to everybody. She does a bit at the end that I think is pretty epic. Outstanding. Like whatever you do, make sure you listen till the end. Yeah, make sure you listen till the end. So I'm going to get you to actually introduce her because I think I'm a bit biased if I do so. And Anne, being Anne, who is very humble, has given us a very, very short bio to introduce her. So Katie, go ahead. We have the fabulous Anne Doherty, who is a consultant anesthesiologist with a subspecialty fellowship in high-risk obstetric anesthesia. She is an honorary senior lecturer with the ORCSI and director of the Rotunda ORCSI Fellowship in Obstetric Anesthesia. Her other full-time job is being the mother of two teenage children. I love that she calls it a full-time job, seeing as I'm part of that full-time job. I think I actually belong to the children part of the full-time job because it's a full-time job. (laughs) She's caring for three, not just two. Yes, so she's caring for four if you include the little dog as well. So yeah. Oh my God, that dog is always involved, a thief. She's got a lot on her plate. So anyway, without further ado, here is the interview with Anne Doherty. This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. 
Evie offers personalised multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment ranging from consultants, high-end scanning and prenatal screening to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. The Evie's team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact Evie today on 01293-3984 or visit the website at evie.ie for more information. We are so excited to have our very special guest join us today. Anne, do you want to tell us all about yourself? So let's see, I have two kids. I'm a mother of two two teenagers, essentially, a 15-year-old and a nearly 13-year-old. Um, Afif has the pleasure of being my husband. But in terms of who I am in my work life, um, I'm an obstetric anaesthetist. Well, I work in the matter too, but my primary role is um, as an obstetric anaesthetist in the Rotunda Hospital. And it is my passion in life, definitely. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty and you can tell me and divulge all your secrets about a thief, we'll keep it uh, strictly uh, to the educational part this time. So we're going to focus just at the beginning, maybe a bit more on the parenting aspect. So I suppose coming back to if you go back to all those years ago when you had your first little bundle of joy, tell us, did you feel that you felt a bit more prepared having your kind of, I suppose, your background of your career? Did it help you? No. <laughs> That's honesty. <laughs> no, I, I actually found it all quite hard. And if you will tell you this, like I was like you read about it, you learn about it in school, you have to in college, you have to do obstetrics as part of your primary degree. Like you learn about all the medical aspects of it. But when you go through it yourself, I'm like quite an independent person. You know, I, I like being me. Um, and to have to share myself with another person, I felt really like I was kind of shunted over to one little corner of my brain. And I used to say to a thief, it was like Superman who'd been stripped of his powers and was living in Clark Kent's bodies with body with no options, you know. So I went from like running to cardiac arrest, working long days in theatre, you know, super, super focus to being just so tired and so sick. I found that really hard um, all the way through the pregnancy. Of course, my 15 year old is a very um, on time kind of girl. And she I went into labour on my due date. That no hardly way. ever happens. Yeah. Um, and off we went into the hospital and um, the trace was awful. I was like zero dilated, like posterior cervix, um, like unprovoked, prolonged braddies. It was time to for her to be delivered by cesarean section. And I kind of knew it in my head. But even when the obstetrician, who was actually one of our friends, came in and said, like, Anne, I, I really don't think that you're going to get away without a cesarean delivery here. Um, I was like, oh, OK. And I didn't think she meant now, you oh. know. So then they all kind of did baby brought it down again. It wasn't coming up. So then it was just all kind of mad rush in. And it was just, I found it just so kind of shocking to be on that side of it because I really found it hard to accept the loss of control. And I actually, I think a lot of parents or a lot of healthcare professionals when they're on the other side mm. actually will definitely. It's so surprising. Yeah, definitely feel and empathise yeah. with you. But do you feel like your, I suppose your knowledge helped or maybe made it a bit more difficult in that situation because you kind of know what was going to happen? Like I was fine. I know the procedure. I know the anaesthesia side of it. I'm fine with all of that. But I think that 
and I'll see it, I see it with the patients that I care for. You can be focused and anxious about the procedure or the anesthetic or the this and the that. But really what you're worried about is just the overwhelming sense of this is a massively critical moment in your life. And you can focus it and, and reason it out as being part of one or the other. You know, uh, you know, the anesthetic, the procedure, the this. But really it's that like this is for keeps, you know, whatever happens now is a defining moment in your life for the foreseeable future. And that's massive. I think loads of mothers actually when they transition to motherhood, that very first experience can be hugely overwhelming. And I don't think like we, like you say, we talk about lack of sleep mm. and we kind of know what's ahead of us. Mm. But like we, I actually loved what you spoke about where you felt that loss of identity a little bit. Oh, when, massive. I, when you had your baby, did you really feel that on mm. your first? Oh, I found it really hard. Really, really hard. Like, and even now I actually just love being in my body, <laughs> loving myself. <laughs> and I found that like, I adore my kids. Don't get me wrong. They're like, I'm really proud of them. I think that they're really good people, you know, and I'm so glad that we have them in our lives. But I found that bit the hardest. And I found like, I went from uh, like postpartum, I went from talking to 50 or a hundred people a day to me and the baby at home. Um, and that was hard. And then I had postpartum thyroiditis and I like, there's so many things that was just hard, but these are all normal peripartum yeah. experiences, you know, that uh, many, many women will go through. They're part of being a woman and going through that experience, you know? And I think loneliness is quite a big thing, even though you're surrounded by people and it's loneliness mm. in a different, I suppose. Vulnerability. Yes. I think when you're so used to meeting people all the time, yeah. it's one thing I found that I could manage the baby. I could yeah. do all that, but I found I lived away from family. Yeah. I didn't have a close circle around that. I actually used to travel an hour in to meet friends mm. in Killarney at the time, yeah. just to have a, a conversation with people. Yeah. Because I found when you're in the house all day, it's a long day. It is. Especially I think on your first when you're so used to be out and about meeting friends and everything else. It's, um, it's, it, like, I don't think any person who works in the maternity services escapes that any like some element of those experiences, because I think that is just part of the sacrifice. You give up yourself. You give up so much of yourself, you know, and I think that should always be recognised regardless of what your background is. And how did you manage when you went back to work, like with both kids, like how did you manage career and parenting? Oh, it was desperate. <laughs> how did you find the balance? Share with everyone yeah. listening, because I know they're going to be like, what's okay. her secret? There is none. It's just really hard. Um, and that's OK, because that is, again, part of life. And that is part of the, you know, you're not failing if it's hard. You're not not doing something correctly if it's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, the whole idea of, you know, women can have everything. Women can do everything. You know, you don't have to do everything. But if you choose to do everything, you're doing everything. Like, that's a lot. You know? And, and how did you manage it? Because I know, obviously, wow. you both have very, you know, big uh, yeah. careers. How do you manage it between each other and, mm. and parent together and manage to, yeah. like, reach what you have reached in your, in your so, career to date? Career-wise, I went back after the six months of mat leave after my first and she went into creche. Um, and we picked a creche that was near the hospital that we both happened to be working in at the time. We would kind of just try and organise schedules about who could drop her and who could pick her up. But like, you know, talk to anybody who's, whose kid is in a creche or if a child minded that they have to pick a child up. Like, you are sweating sitting in traffic trying to get there on time. 
you know, and that's universal as well. Like it doesn't matter what job you do. It's it's part and parcel of it. Unfortunately, that pressure, you know, yeah. um, and then my first ended up getting pneumonia the first night, the first weekend I was on call after going back. My husband was at home. I was on call for ICU in the hospital and I get a phone call. He's saying, look, she's a fever. She's quite shut down. She's really lethargic. So when I finished call, we went straight from call into Crumlin. Um, and like they took a look at her and they were like, hello and welcome. You're being admitted, you know. Um, and she was in hospital for about 48, 72 hours, I think, until like antibiotics kicked in and all those kind of things. And she was febrile for a good 24 hours, no matter what. And she, I think she was seven months at this stage. And I'd gone from like no sleep there and I stayed in the hospital with her for the 48 hours. And Afif was trying to get me to leave and I wouldn't leave. Do you think it's an internal pressure we put on ourselves that like Afif could have stayed, but we were like, no, I want to be there? Well, for me anyway, I found that with both of mine, it's like you know them before they're born. You you feel like you know their personality, you know, because you felt them move and you know their habits and their routines and how they react to stimuli inside all of those things like and then when they're born and you get to know them in a different way again and like I had breastfed her until about four or five months when we started weaning and that was in itself I found that hard you know so she was so close to having been a part of me at that stage that I actually couldn't be away from her I just couldn't do that you know um and it's not to, to say, oh, I'm such a hero. I stayed with her. That's not it. FIFA's perfectly capable, in, in some ways more so because he's a pediatrician <laughs> of being in with her, you know. But I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't walk away. And the guilt of actually having been on my, for her to get sick when I'm on my first weekend on call, it was just a bit much like, you know, yeah. I needed to kind of, it's not a control thing. It was just to say, well, I, only I say, am here. I only say that because I, like, I suppose when the kids are sick, I always take control. And I don't mean it in a, like Jim's perfectly well at doing it, like looking after them. But I suppose I, I just, I couldn't step back either. Mm. But I don't know whether that's control or is it just that, like just, that, the kids always seem to, not that they want the mom over the dad, but for us in our family, when somebody's sick, they seem to always come to me. But you're a nurse, you see. Possibly. You yeah, know, so know. there's, there's a, a distance in terms of interpreting things, you know. Well, yes, I definitely agree. Though we always say like the kids of doctors or healthcare professionals are either over-investigated or under-diagnosed. Under. Yeah, left but never appropriately managed. <laughs> yes, I will actually fully agree with that one. And just, I suppose, one thing, because we speak about this a lot, myself and Afif, um, with everyone that comes on, because we see, I suppose, not a discrepancy, but an unbalance sometimes between males and females mm-hmm. when it comes to parenting. Mm-hmm. So when, some, when the kids were sick, when they were small, who chose or were, was it ever expected that a thief would go to work and not between just you, but I suppose in your workplace that you would stay home and a thief would go? Or is it just that something you decided between each other or would it have an impact on the work? We decided. Often it was who was on call. Okay. Getting somebody to cover you for a day shift is one thing, but getting somebody to cover you for a 24 or 30 hour shift is Much a whole harder. other thing, you know? So it would be who's on call or if when he was covering transport, like we've so many stories of like <laughs> anybody who's part of Doosla don't listen. Afif <laughs> <laughs> is going, what of is course. she going to say? <laughs> no, I've just kind of gone, okay, like, and I think no matter 
what your job is. There are times when you are looking at your sick child going, how can I fudge this? (laughs) How can I get away with kind of calling the margins in the right way that lets me do what I need to do? Because you're never in a vacuum. You never can just go, oh, I think I'll not go in today and I'm going to look after this child. There's responsibilities that you have to take into account. And that's where the pressure comes from. Would you agree? Yeah, it was pretty much... Which was less of a disaster. Yeah. Me not going to work or I'm not, not going, going to work, to work you know, because it's not like a job that somebody else can yes. step up and, and do your role. I mean, we're always short in terms of, you know, junior doctors when we were both training and you can't get somebody to cover your night shift. No, it's um, very that hard day. to. It's, it's almost impossible uh, to in do. In fairness, our colleagues have been phenomenal when we've needed them to be. Yeah. And we there's. just try not to ask them to. Yeah. And there's um, this dread when you pick up the phone and trying to phone around to say, can you cover me? Can you do this? Can you do that? Cause people, cause there aren't, there aren't contingencies in the hospital for something like this. You literally have to phone around yourself. And often the onus is on the person that has taken the time off to find the cover rather than HR doing it for you. HR won't do it for you. And it's, I mean, think about that. You have a sick child that you yeah. need to manage. You are worried about them, but you're also worried about the job that you're leaving behind and have to sort it out. That part I found was really difficult. And and do you think it was easier the second time around? Second time around with my son, I had really bad hyperemesis. So I know it was great crack. But um, on the other hand, like the sedative effect of the anti-nausea and vomiting meds I was on meant I slept like a dream for the entire pregnancy, which was brilliant. (laughs) And I just pipe in and say her hyperemesis was really hard on me. I could not have garlic. I could not have garlic fries or garlic chips for like nine whole months. So now every woman that has hyperemesis is actually going at you now. <laughs> exactly. I had to go and cheat on her and have garlic fries behind her back. Yeah. And then he'd come home and I'd be like, get out. Get out. Get away so from actually, me. now that we're talking about hyperemesis, because mm. I know this is a topic um, and actually we had Sabrina Hill, who obviously um, suffered really badly in her last pregnancy with it. Did you find it easier to access medications because you can speak as a medical professional one to another? Look, I, I can't cope with this. This is happening. And they listen to you more because you often many women will say in their experience, until recently that there's been such a media coverage about it, it was just kind of put down to, look, you're just a bit sick, you know, it's just morning sickness, it's grand. So I was lucky in that, okay, so my first, the nausea kind of calmed down after about 16 weeks. But I I reckon in the hospitals I was in up until that point, there's still like smoothies and little packets of crackers in cracks in the wall, I'd say, where I was hiding them in the middle of the night on call. Like I remember one time pulling a yellow bin behind the anaesthetic machine at three o'clock in the morning and silently vomiting <laughs> and then pushing aside the yellow bin, pulling up my mask and going in, you feeling okay there? Because <laughs> you had to keep going, you know. And then in the second one where it was really bad, we were blessed in that I was in Canada. So on fellowship. So they had caravan there that was pretty much normal for women who had hyperemesis to be on, you know, and I was on that plus another one up until about 36 weeks. It was it was a lifesaver. Um, when it first kicked in about seven or eight weeks in terms of the nausea, uh, I just remember I couldn't lift my head. I couldn't lift my head in the bed. It was so bad. Um, and then soon after I started the caravan, which was just a lifesaver. And then just to, to, to totally control it, if it got very bad, I'd take another one as well, another medication as well. So, so when baby was born, it was like the biggest relief. 
Well, it started to settle down around 36 weeks. I don't know if that is a, a typical thing. I'm not sure. But um, it started to get a bit better then toward the end of pregnancy. I suppose the hormone changes maybe. When I had my son, it was it was easier. I had hoped to try and do a trial of labour after cesarean. But um, again, same thing was happening. So I always say like, you know, you can edit this bit out if you feel it's too personal. If I always say like my cervix is just there for decoration. It's non-functional. It just kind of, it doesn't dilate. It doesn't do other things. It's just there. So I didn't kind of actually get into labor either time. Even though, yeah. So like I had contractions both times for about two days. Um, And like early labor, early. Um, But it was just doing nothing. Um, Both babies were bradying down. Um, But did you, you had a good experience with the C-section? Yeah. One of my friends stayed back late post-call to do my spinal because they'd been really busy overnight. There'd been a lot of very serious case going on. So um, I was kind of in the queue, you know, Um, and she stayed back late to do my spinal and look after me. Yeah. So let me set the scene. So for both C-sections, we were both working in that hospital where the C-section has happened, both in Ireland and in Canada. And I remember in Canada, when we were having crack, when you, you <laughs> and your, you and your mates were having crack, I was, I was shitting it because, because, it's because, so true. because, because the heart rate was, was dipping yeah. in and out, dipping. And I was yeah. like, oh my, God, oh my God, we need to get this baby out. We need to get this but baby we out. We had to kind of wait because like, so, so because, because she was the anesthetic fellow working in the obstetrics department, she knew everybody, Everyone. she knew her obstetrician really, really well. And I remember we were laughing so hard. Sitting. Yeah, I was sitting at, at the head of the of the of the table. Yeah. And the obstetrician was doing the section and goes, Oh my god, we've got a bleeder. And I was like, What? I was like, Oh my god, we can't stop it. Oh my god, Anne, you're losing blood. Oh my god, what's happening? And I was roaring laughing. Just I kidding. Was and piss. I was like, Oh my god <laughs> I was laughing. At one stage she had to say, Anne. Your uterine incision is going to be completely jagged, jagged. <laughs> if you don't stop laughing. So she was laughing so we much during the laughing. section. Yeah. I was he was pain. dying inside. Was, yeah. he, was, he can't then, handle this. And so then when there's when there's pressure on me. the uterus, the mum can sometimes feel nauseous. So Anne turned her her face away from me, puked. Baby was delivered. She turns around and goes, "Isn't this beautiful?" And then the obstetrician was like, "Go on, give her a kiss." I was like, "I'm not kissing." <laughs> I'm not kissing that mouth. She's just puked. And then all of them literally silenced. It was all women in the room except yeah, me. Silence turned at my face like, give her a kiss because right now. now. It was really funny. <laughs> yeah. So, it was good crack. Yeah, um, well, I didn't think it was. I, yeah, I'm, 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 still, I'm still traumatized. I was going to yeah. say, not on the feet's part. You I would have Yeah, I definitely. I would have loved me to fly in the wall in oh that situation. God, it was so funny. It was so it was funny. So yeah. Funny. yeah. So tell us lastly, what advice would you give to another parent or a new parent that's going into this journey of parenthood? Just take it as it comes. I don't know if people accurately represent how tough it is sometimes, but it's not tough in a really awful way. Like it's tough in a gritty real life way. But, you know, if you find good friends who will be honest with you and kind of laugh at the hard bits and cry at the hard bits with you um it all just it does ease up it does settle down like I found the biggest the hardest part wasn't the loss of sleep wasn't the surgeries wasn't the thyroiditis wasn't any of that bit it was the loss of the sense of self but that comes back over time um and you do end up being 
a stronger person. And if you look back on it, you end up hopefully kind of being wowed by what you can do and who you are now. That's the way I see it. I'm not saying I'm wowed at myself. I'm just saying women in general should be, should stand in that strength and be proud of it. That's fab. (laughs) I couldn't have thought a better way to end this. And we're going to ask a few more uh, questions now all about um, your obstetrics, but I'm going to take a little step back on this one and let the hubby go hell for leather. As as everybody knows, we both work in the Rotunda Hospital, but we almost never see each other at work. And yeah. I think that's well, probably... Well, I avoid you quite Yeah, I've figured that. Well. I've figured yeah. that. Probably good when there's a bit of marital um, discord. Yeah. That you don't get to so see each other. It's, it's actually kind of... Like, we don't talk about work a lot at home. We don't no. talk about home a lot at work. Do you, so you don't look gazingly over those curtains. And we no. never have. You know, when, gets, when a baby's being delivered, if, if the peds are there waiting, no, and you look down and go, oh, there he is. He, no. He loves coming over. I go, being, I go. There he she gets is. really excited when he's in the same room where I'm working. Oh, that's really creepy. And but I'm she's like, not. no, I'm like, like, I'm busy. Like, it's not about you, Afif. I have a patient on the table. He reminds me so much of your dog. He's kind of needy. <laughs> <laughs> in the nicest oh sense. Nicest yeah, sense yeah, of yeah. I, I, I can yeah. either there's, deny there, or there's confirm. The <laughs> there's the reel for this episode, anyway. What I wanted to ask you was you are pretty much involved in all different kinds of labor deliveries and things mm-hmm. like that. And you, but you're not sort of directly involved in the obstetric and um, in the obstetric and literally. Yes. But you do observe a lot of it. Mm-hmm. There's this increasing notion going on around now that women are disempowered when they go into hospital, that the decisions for their birth are stripped away from them, that they are told what to do and that they have to oblige. Mm-hmm. And, Unfortunately, this narrative is getting louder and louder and louder. Yeah. And I wanted to get your take on it being an observer that's sort of in the thick of it, but not really. Your question is, what's my take on the increasing rates of intervention, is it? No, not that. No? The, 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 the sense of the decision making process okay. about the decisions around labor. Are mums listened to? Are mums yeah. um, involved um, in the conversation? In terms of women's perception of coming into a hospital and having a baby in a hospital environment. I agree that there is an awful lot of noise, differing opinions, opinions on the same data that are loudly expressed. And it just seems to be a kind of cacophony of opinion that's flying around. And it's very hard to find a single source of truth in all of that. Um, And I think that creates a lot of anxiety, fear, and a sense of disempowerment before you ever put your foot in the door. And I think that that's an issue. Like social media has been a godsend in terms of giving people a voice who need a voice. Okay. And my amplifying voices um, where they previously would not have had access to a platform, but I don't think that we have yet developed a means of filtering opinion and feeling away from fact. And I think that that is part of the issue. As a statistician yourself, you know that the same numbers can be perceived differently. So the numbers need to be represented and people need to understand how to look at those numbers and not the opinions or the agendas from people interpreting the numbers. And I think that's where the issue lies. 
not how people like when people are in hospital, if you say, I do not want this, nobody should do that. And nobody does that. I have seen women strongly determine their own course in labor and around the peripartum experience. I have seen people speak to them and give them facts. And there is a duty of care on the midwives and the obstetricians or the gynecologists, depending on what the what the, the course is um, and the intervention that's being proposed is. Um, their duty of care is to go in and explain factually how things are evolving and what the options are. Um, and I've seen, seen women decline those and I've seen good outcomes, even though they've declined that because they decided that they were going to accept the risk. Just because you accept a risk, it doesn't mean that something bad is going to happen. It doesn't mean that that's an inevitable outcome. But I've also seen people accept risk and had have bad outcomes. Okay, so in terms of risk, you can either mitigate it, which is what we try and do with the interventions, I think, where you try and limit the, the, the risk exposure or you accept the risk. I just think that there's a lot of noise around it saying that you're, you know, somebody's going to interfere with your labor and not allow you to make those decisions. That's not the case. Consent is paramount. It's always been there. It's always been the case that consent is the priority. But you will have somebody coming in and updating you on the progress of the risk that you've accepted, because it can't be a case that you say no and then they just walk away because that's wrong. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that you raise is that it's because it's obviously a dynamic process and yeah. things change all the time. Coming back after a while to discuss either the same thing or different things isn't the healthcare provider trying to coerce you into doing something, but it is updating you. The situation has changed. Mm -hmm. These are the options now. And if you continue to follow the same course of action, that is okay. But I think we are obliged to update yeah. you on what is going on. Isn't yeah. that what you're getting at? In my practice, I could have a woman who, and we have had patients who absolutely do not want an epidural. And that is their right, 100% to decline that. If it is medically indicated, say, if somebody has very severe epilepsy and fatigue is a trigger, or if somebody has preeclampsia and their blood pressure is really, really difficult to manage in labour, I am not going to force them to have an epidural. That's a terrible thing. Nobody does that. The epidural is there in their options to help control that issue. But nobody is going to essentially assault you with an epidural needle because that is what it would be. The narrative of women being actively disempowered, I have not seen it. As a woman who delivered in hospital for both of my babies, I have not experienced it. But if if there are women out there who feel that they have, I think it's really important that they feed it back to their hospitals and to their healthcare professionals. And there is a me mechanism in place. As a consultant, anesthetist working in an obstetric hospital, we get feedback, good and bad, from our patients. And it's really important that we get that. And I think it's important for people listening to know that there are committees, groups, meetings to address those very issues, complaints, feedback yeah. to try and improve things and also respond to them as well. Yeah. And sometimes women don't even know, so they'll have questions, but there is a reflective birth uh, service that you can go to. You can go back and do, uh, it's generally a midwife that will go through it. They'll have their notes and everything and then the consultant can be involved. So it, there's a lot of opportunities 
to question and find out, you know, what happened during the labor. Because yeah. sometimes when I suppose the choice is taken away, and I don't mean the choices and we didn't make it, but when things escalate mm-hmm. and you're given the information, it can be a whirlwind. And I think 100%. maybe sometimes that's when we parents or mothers may feel they were disempowered because mm-hmm. it's so quick, it's snappy, you must make decisions. But I suppose when you've got a life at hand, two lives in play, you know, sometimes maybe that is where some women may feel disempowered. Yes. So I always say that like when it is an emergency where there is a risk to the mother's life or the baby's life, okay, so category one section or a significant postpartum hemorrhage or something where there's a rapid escalation um, in care because of a rapid deterioration in well-being. It becomes quite utilitarian. And then what we usually do is we try, we go back to the patients afterwards and we try and retrospectively finesse it, <laughs> is how I describe it. Um, but really, we go back and we try and put the human face on it and retrospectively inject the connection and the rapport that we didn't have the opportunity to create at the at the initial point of contact. Um, and then even later again, I encourage people like if if they need to sit down and meet and go through some of the notes and the context around decisions or communications or terms or any of that, um, it's super important. So we try and go back and put the, the human face on it again and inject the caring side of it. But it is, it's, it's, it can be really traumatic, you know, but also not just for the mother, but also for the partner, because they're watching two of the people they care most about in the world, their partner and their baby in, in a really challenging situation in a big struggle, you know, and they are also actually can sometimes quite traumatized by watching all of these things happen. And sometimes they're, I would say sometimes more traumatized because, if the mother I'd isn't doing things, yeah. yeah, if they're not really fully with it or mother's yeah. coming in and out, uh, yeah. you find the partner sees yeah. an awful lot more. Well, I think it's just different. Like the mother is there and I think she's tolerating a lot being done to her and that level of kind of, and that's potentially where you talk about the disempowerment. Okay. Um, there's a certain amount of passivity that has to happen, you know, at that hyperacute emergency where you just kind of have to go with it. And that's really traumatic to actually give yourself over in that way is really hard. Whereas the birth partner is there and they're watching someone they love and want to advocate for, and they're not able to do that because they say that they don't have the context and the capacity and all that kind of stuff. It's very hard. Yeah. You know, so that's a really tough situation. I want to ask about epidurals because it's something that obviously happens a lot and you do a lot of in the hospital and... Four and a half thousand a year. Yeah. Yeah. So half the women, almost, or more than half of the women... More than half. More than half um, happen. Again, the narrative that this interrupts the birth process or the physiological birth process. What's your take on that? Yes, there's been a lot of studies on this and there's been no consistent indicators that having an epidural in labor delays the first stage of labor. So going from zero to 10 centimeters in terms of the second stage, the pushing stage originally when we used very dense local anesthetics, um, so high concentrations, so a lot of drug essentially to make you super numb, 
there was an association with a higher rate of intervention during the pushing stage um, and a slower rate of progress. Now we use quite dilute concentrations. Uh, the aim being that we, the way I describe it is that we take away that really kind of gripping, intense cramping. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. <laughs> sensations. Okay. Um, but leave you with the sensation of tightening and pressure. And that pressure can be really, really, really intense, especially as the baby moves toward the perineum. Um, but we leave you with that because ideally, um, because it, it's your sat-nav for pushing. It's your guidance system for pushing, where to push, how to push. It helps maintain your instincts. Um, so definitely there's not the same association with intervention and epidurals in the second stage. Potentially, some studies have shown, I think it was 12 minutes or something was potentially the the, the delay in the second stage associated with an epidural. Um, but some people are happy to accept that 12 minutes. If it I remember they have hours of comfort. I remember when I was a junior doctor and uh, and you had to be in the room because there was a suspicion that, you know, the baby may not be well coming out. Mm-hmm. And in, in women that have had an epidural, I remember the midwife had to keep her hand on the mum's belly just to feel the contraction herself so she could tell the mother, you're getting a contraction now, now you push. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that happening as much as because of what you said. You've changed how you administer the epidural and therefore they are more in control of that feedback mechanism. You don't have to be told when you get a contraction. And that's a big change. And I think many people mightn't realise that that is the case. I think actually there's more parents that believe then that they don't work because I hear, oh, it didn't work. It definitely didn't work. I felt everything or I felt pain. I think now that you've actually described it, because my previous thoughts would have been that we don't feel that you should feel some slight sensation as in that, you know, the baby's coming here for pushing stage. But I didn't realise that it was that much lighter. So that's probably where a lot of people perceive now that they're not working when actually they're doing the job they're meant to do. Yes and no. Like, you know, with an epidural, there's always possibility of patches. Yeah. Um, the sacral cover. So in labor, the uterine contractions, the sensation to your uterus during those contractions come off kind of uh, from kind of low thoracic uh, upper lumbar level of nerves. OK, in your spine. And then the sensation down around kind of vagina perineum comes down way lower down around the sacrum. So with an epidural, especially for the first, say, two hours, you get better pain relief around low thoracic lumbar and it takes a few hours for it to completely sink down to the sacrum. So sometimes the baby comes faster and the epidural doesn't catch up entirely. Now, there's options to deal with that if that was the case that you laboured very quickly in the past um, and let your anaesthetist know because we can tweak things, okay? But for a straightforward epidural it takes a couple of hours to sink into sacrum. So sometimes you can get what's called um, a sacral sparing effect for the first couple of hours where it takes a while to sink down into the sacrum and, and numb your perineum. So if you, if just because I know there'd be people wondering, so if a mom has her epidural and then think their pathway changes and they're looking to go in towards surgery for a C-section, what happens? First of all, your anaesthetist will review how effective your epidural is. As I said, there's always a possibility for patches. When it was inserted, how much top-ups did you need? How much have you been using your button if you have one of those button pressers? Um, Just to see how reliable the spread of local anaesthetic is with the epidural catheter in that position. 
if it's deemed that like you were very comfortable, you didn't need a lot of medication top ups or anything like that, then we would essentially change from the super dilute, the beer, to the more concentrated, the whskey. Okay. <laughs> Version Just of a disclaimer to our audience. It's not alcohol. It's we don't actually <laughs> inject beer or whiskey. <laughs> we go for a much more concentrated local anesthetic um, that changes it from a pain reliever effect to an anesthetic. And it, it'll take about 20 minutes for that top up to have full effect. Okay. And what we're looking for is that you really can't lift your heels off the bed if you keep your knees straight. And that you're numb to cold or light touch from mid-chest down to your toes. When we have those two things satisfied, it's unlikely you'll have any discomfort, but we don't go anywhere. Um, so that's the epidural side of it. If we feel like the epidural spread hasn't been good enough, that it's not going to spread in the way we want it to, then we talk about an alternative form of anesthesia. If you haven't had a top-up or anything like that relatively recently, you don't have loads of local anaesthetics sitting in your epidural space, you know, um, then we can talk about doing taking out the epidural and putting in a spinal anaesthetic. It's more direct acting. When you say taking out the epidural and going with the spinal, it's not another needle into the spine. It's the same. No, it's yeah. another needle. Okay, so you actually do it again. Yeah. Okay. 100%. So what we what we... What we want to know is that if somebody has come in and given you a big top up through your epidural for pain or something, or it's a relatively recent epidural, you have local anaesthetic sitting in your epidural space. If we then go and give you a spinal while that local anaesthetic is kicking in, then you've, we've kind of doubled down <laughs> and we don't want that because we don't want the, the anaesthetic running higher in you than it needs to. But if the epidural has just been in there, you haven't had a top up in about an hour um, but the spread hasn't been what we would like and that we would guarantee your comfort during that we would be happy to take the risk of your, you know, having that patch or something during the uh, surgical intervention. What we do is we take out that epidural. We go in with a much smaller needle. It goes in directly into the fluid around the nerve. So it's more direct acting. It's a lower dose. It's faster acting. And it's because it's so direct, it's more reliable spread whereas the epidural wasn't give you that reliable spread. The reason why we wouldn't do a spinal for labour is because it lasts for about an hour and a half, and most labours definitely last longer than an hour okay. and a half. So you need your epidural in place if that's what you're going with. And finally, I wanted to ask you about the, and I don't know if that's the correct term, the mobile epidurals. Ah, yes. So walking epidurals or mobile epidurals, yeah. I've so, never heard about these. Are you joking? Never. Oh, the people love, people want them, but it's tricky business. So the idea being that you can use ultralight um, concentrations of local anesthetics, okay? And you can mobilize while having the epidural in place, okay? And it is the holy grail. Mobilize meaning literally Walk, get, getting around. out of the bed walking and walking around. around. Okay. A few things you need in place though. You need one-to-one midwifery support that is never interrupted they need to be happy and capable and trained to check your block and check your motor function after every time you got like half 20 minutes after every time you get a top up and intermittently throughout so after they get a top up are they bed rest well until that is effective you see because like the thing is no matter what you do there is always going to be some risk or some actual effect on your muscles in terms of yeah. strength. So what you don't want 
is someone to be halfway down the corridor and bang, they go down. So there is a trend in some countries. I think you'd need to have mobile CTG monitoring. So the hospital will have to be saturated in Wi-Fi. You'll have to have um, a mobile pump. You'll have to have a midwife who's with you the whole time, who's trained in motor block assessment, epidural top-ups, all of those kind of things. So um, are these it's, a- it's a tricky situation. And I don't know a lot of countries that implement them routinely. And are these like just like, so it's even the kind of more dilute than what you would do? It would be similar, to be honest. Now, there is another way to do it, but it's very limited in terms of the duration of the efficacy of it, where you could do a combined spinal epidural where you do the epidural, but you also pop a little spinal needle through the epidural needle and you give an opiate, a drug called fentanyl directly into the fluid around the nerve. And then you do the normal epidural and you don't load that epidural catheter with local anesthetic. You let the fentanyl work for the first hour and a bit and they could potentially mobilize for another hour just using the fentanyl. But I'll be honest, it's fairly short acting, you know, of limited benefit. You might get another hour and a bit mobilizing with some analgesia, but you're not into them. I don't think we've come across the right drug for it yet. Well, I'm a bit biased, but I think this has been one of the best interviews we've had in the season so far. What do you think, Katie? This by far is one of my favourites. And I can't wait for the aftermath of uh, myself and Anne having a full-blown uh, conversation about uh, you, Afif. We're going to troll you. I know. I can't wait. I can't wait for that either. Before we finish the season, are there any last words you'd like to give before the end of the episode? There was one thing I was thinking about doing and it was nearly like an antidote to or a reply to um, the perception of kind of interventions or healthcare workers who don't listen and it's just something after the pandemic we were all very tired (laughs) and we kind of come through a couple of years where there was so much distance between us and the patients in terms of PPE and rules that were coming in that were limiting our contact and were limiting patient contact with us and all that kind of stuff. And I think people found it really hard because patient contact is the reason we're there. And after a particularly tiring day, I just sat down and I just thought I have to put down on words why we do what we do. And every now and then I read it as a way of kind of getting back in touch with why I love my job. I'm not a writer. I'm also not a public figure or a public speaker, but I'm definitely a talker and an enthusiastic user of profanity. So maybe the lack of public speaking is just as well. I'm a woman, a mother, daughter, wife, sister, and a believer in the strength of that role. I'm a doctor and a niece of this working primarily in obstetrics. I spend my days and sometimes my nights with people who are at the cool face of the most raw, challenging and primal part of life. It's wonderful and I love it. I love the families, the many layers and diverse skills of staff, the cups of coffee often drank cold, the dark sense of humour acknowledging how stark it all is sometimes. The stakes are high, the successes exquisite and the failures drop or slower than many realise. It's all so worthwhile. To be clear, when I talk about our staff, I don't mean only the doctors, nurses and midwives that people think of in the healthcare system. A maternity hospital is a hive of activity with household catering, portering services, healthcare assistants, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, radiographers, 
clinical pharmacists, medical scientists and administrative staff. All are in patient-facing roles. The place couldn't run without them and I know I've forgotten some. Our patients never cease to amaze me. Women are warriors, not in an I am woman, hear me roar sense, but in a quietly tough, dignified and remarkable way. The physical requirements to grow and give birth to a child is registered often in an abstract way by society, but it's an enormous physical adjustment and not so small a psychological challenge either. I know that fathers and wider family members face these challenges alongside our mothers, but it is primarily a woman's challenge to face in some unique ways that cannot be shared. Every baby is born in some part covered in its mother's blood. That may sound gory, but to me it's a mark of the effort and sacrifice that these women make. Their bodies are forever changed by the process of pregnancy and birth. It's quickly after the start of pregnancy that the female body starts to adapt to the shared occupancy. The maternal heart works faster and harder, pumping an even greater volume of blood as pregnancy progresses. The breath gets deeper, scooping into reserves that we are unaware of in our everyday lives. The acid-base balance of the blood shifts to facilitate easy transfer of vital oxygen to the growing baby. It's involuntary, but by no means easy. For some, the fatigue is barely manageable, or the nausea unforgiving, and still daily life continues. As I write these words, I know that a significant proportion of those reading or listening may be triggered. People do not realise the amount of bereavement that passes through our maternity hospitals. So many pregnancies end in fetal or neonatal loss, and I meet these mothers every day of my working life, as do my colleagues. Sometimes they come back to have a healthy baby after an uncomplicated pregnancy, Sometimes they come back for help with recurrent miscarriage, subsequent stillbirth, preterm labour. It all happens and it's bloody hard. There are some others I will remember for the rest of my life who have suffered beyond what could have been endured and yet still endure. My heart aches for those women. I still feel raw years later when I think of them and I know all of our staff have those women and families they carry with them in this way. I write this not solely as an acknowledgement of motherhood, but as a love letter of sorts to womanhood. All of humanity have been born from a woman, and so womanhood and motherhood is deeply personal to us all. Not every woman wishes to become a mother, not every mother gets to raise her child, but we as women face these choices and experiences, and they're unique to our lives and our bodies. What a way to end the season. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the Baby Track Podcast. It's amazing.